You're listening to Matters of Engagement, a podcast examining issues at the intersection of health, healthcare, and society. I'm Jennifer Johannesson. And I'm Emily Nicholas Angle. In this episode, we continue our health policy series with guests Alpha Ababa and Rhonda C. George. Alpha and Rhonda are members of the Public Engagement and Health Policy team based at McMaster University, which aims to strengthen health policymaking in Canada by providing a platform for interdisciplinary scholarship, education, and leadership in public engagement. Their research foregrounds Black community experiences and insights related to health policy engagement. We're featuring their work over two back-to-back episodes. This episode focuses on the engagement work of Black communities, Our guests want to flip the script and shift away from a deficit model of understanding Black community engagement. The follow-up episode features Alpha and Rhonda's research on Black community engagement during COVID and includes discussion on why they think it's valuable for Black researchers to be doing this kind of work. For transcripts and links, please check the show notes. Hey, Emily. So what do you think? How about we just jump right in? Alpha and Rhonda can do some quick introductions, and then we'll carry on from there. Yep, let's do it. Let's meet our guests. My name is Alpha Bubba. I'm an assistant professor in the Faculty of Humanities at McMaster University, and also a researcher and and part of the team on the Public Engagement and Health Policy Project. Hello, my name is Rhonda C. George. I am a PhD candidate in sociology at York University. And just broadly speaking, my research focus is on race and racialization within social institutions. So within educational systems, within sporting systems, but also in healthcare systems. Both Alpha and Rhonda are part of the Public Engagement and Health Policy Project. To get things started, we asked about why they thought it was important to bring a Black community focus into the project. You'll hear Alpha first, followed by Rhonda. One of the things that um, became clear to me was that particularly with the co- onset of COVID, where we we saw very clearly how Black communities were disproportionately affected by the pandemic in all different respects. Um, and, and so given that, and given the fact that we had a pretty good sense that Black communities were not very well represented in uh, public engagement processes, it felt important to have a Black-specific focus in, in our project. How policy engagement happens in Black communities is very different than what is expected or how policy engagement is is traditionally designed. And I don't think we're having enough conversations about why it's different and what that actually looks like or why that actually is happening. (laughs) Drawing on interviews with leaders of Black-led organizations and initiatives, Alpha and Rhonda are examining the extent to which these efforts have engaged or been engaged by policymakers in that process. Their goal is, in part, to change the way we collectively look at engagement, particularly in Black communities. We are kind of um, flipping the the script to some extent and flipping the um, analysis to look from the bottom up. And so in looking at community-led engagement processes and advocacy efforts, I think it makes it more clear why it's a more kind of broad reaching and like a holistic look at different forms of engagement and, and different kinds of groups. Based on conversations we've had in the past, I think it's commonly understood that Black communities are underrepresented in public engagement processes, particularly related to health research, health care, and health policy. 
Yep, and the mainstream instinct is to lean into ideas of diversity and inclusion. And often it's not terribly nuanced or differentiated. People who are identified as not white or not middle class end up being kind of conceptually grouped together in one category, often labeled as hard to reach in mainstream engagement activities. Do you want to just say a little bit more about what we mean by mainstream? Oh, sure. Yeah, we do use that word a lot in this episode, and I guess it's a bit of a shorthand. Many organizational decision-making spaces are indeed predominantly occupied by people who identify as white. But that's not exactly what we're referring to. Mainstream here, the way we're using it, refers more to the cultural perspective that seems to dominate these spaces, which is sometimes referred to as liberalism or maybe liberal multiculturalism. People are welcomed and there's a friendly and open invitation to participate, but there's virtually no acknowledgement of historical or current oppression or disadvantage. It's essentially Canadian culture, which tends towards inclusion, but without the messiness of history and context. We asked about these notions of diversity and inclusion that use labels like hard to reach. Here's Rhonda. I personally am not a fan of grouping everybody together as vulnerable communities, marginalized communities. Uh, what's another one? Visible minorities. Because I think people of African descent have a very distinct history. And with the, even within the African diaspora, if we're thinking about people in Canada, we have people from the Caribbean, English-speaking Caribbean, French, Spanish, Dutch-speaking Caribbean, people from South America, people who are Black Canadians who have been here since the 1700s. We have people from the continent, East, West, North, South, Central, different languages, different religions. And so the Black community is so diverse in of itself that to group us with all these other communities that have different histories, different concerns, different experiences, it just doesn't make sense. But I also feel that, you know, within the Canadian context, we're quite uncomfortable talking about race and talking about our historical con context and our historical contributions to marginalizing some of these communities that I think it's very Canadian to just lump everybody non-white together. Rhonda's pointing out that, of course, Black communities have distinct and diverse needs. But as Alpha explains, in terms of advocacy, while Black communities don't tend to fare well when grouped with other communities, even if there is an overlap of needs. I think historically, we have the data that we need to understand that when initiatives and efforts, policy directives, resources have come together under the banner of marginalized, visible minorities, vulnerable communities, Black people have generally, historically, been underserved within that grouping, um, sometimes grossly underserved and underrepresented in, in those efforts. So there's a track record there, we know this. You start to see the ugly legacy of anti-Black racism uh, rearing its head and creating barriers even when Black communities are supposedly part of, of the target in, in these efforts. So we, we've seen this before, right? Um, I also don't want to discount the value of solidarity across experiences ident and identity groups. And I think, you know, even in the conversations that we've been having so far with our own project, some of these Black leaders, you know, or many of them, I think all of them probably, um, spoke to the strategic value in aligning their efforts and their advocacy efforts with 
the efforts of other groups um, who are experiencing these barriers. And they do that with, um, you know, thoughtfully and with with skill and savvy. Uh, and so there's there's room for that, and there's important there's def definitely um, a level of importance um, that should be afforded to, and space that should be afforded to that work. So working together with other groups can have its place, especially when done strategically. But as Alpha points out, there can be a limit to how much solidarity can achieve especially when underlying needs of Black communities are not prioritized. Just let's be honest about, about our history. Uh, I think, one, we have to recognize that like, there has been a resistance to creating supports um, and spaces for Black communities specifically, and we need to unpack that resistance and understand why that makes us so uncomfortable as a first step. And, and two, recognize that many times when we do do that kind of grouping, Black people are just not served. And that's why you see so many of these really great grassroots efforts that pop up within Black communities to support, you know, their own communities because these other equity-focused uh, initiatives or other kind of initiatives are not serving their, their, their communities well. So it's great that we see those grassroots efforts, but we have to recognize that it's in response often to the gaps in the system. The gaps that Alpha is talking about are felt in very real and tangible ways by people in Black communities. But the stories and the testimonials of that lived experience don't seem to easily translate directly into action. Rhonda shed some light on why collecting data is so important. I can speak for myself as a researcher. You may know things instinctively, you may know things anecdotally, but it actually being documented, recorded, that data gap does exist. And so that does not give us a good foundation to sometimes do the work, ask the questions, think about policies, figure out where gaps are. And so I'm always questioning, we're always trying to act, but what data are we using to act upon? How are we making these decisions? Who are we speaking to? The people who are in the decision-making seats, do they have the capacity and the knowledge and the training and, and do they have the data to even be informing, you know, their decision-making processes or their policies? And so I think taking stock is definitely a first step in, in getting some of this important work done because there is a lot of work being done on the ground, but Certain people know it and others don't. I think there is this tension between the need for more data and more research and also not using that data gap as an excuse not to respond to issues on the ground. And so I think part of it is also what, as, as Rhonda was alluding to, you know, some communities, some, that information exists but you know in what form and and who's listening and which forms of knowledge and data are validated and considered legitimate and which ones are not do we have to wait until x policy you know house or x university conducts a 10-year longitudinal study before we know that community x you know needs a health center maybe not right and so i think it's this balance between continuing the fight to collect more data and get more of these um, important issues documented but also not using it as an excuse for inaction especially in light of 
just decades and decades of tireless work and advocacy um, and research of different kinds um, that that black communities have and, and other communities have led. Yep. So this sounds very familiar. We know this is the case in other spheres, like when researching issues in mental health, disability, poverty, the list goes on. It seems there is always another study to commission, which often creates barriers to action. Rhonda connects this to questions of trust. I think one of the biggest questions that we need to ask is, do we trust communities to know what they need and to make those decisions for themselves, right? Data is important, but if these communities are living these things and speaking out about these things and creating interventions in their own communities, why do we think that there's only one way to move forward, which is the top-down policy engagement, that kind of thing? So I think at the root of that is we need to question what does it mean for these communities to not necessarily, their own knowledge and their own ways of doing things or their own ways of knowing, why is it or how is it that we devalue that? The point that that you raised or the example you raised about sickle cell, like for myself, and I would probably say probably for Rhonda, you know. For- In this part of the conversation, I'd referred to an interview we had with Biba Tinga. She's the president and executive director of the Sickle Cell Disease Association of Canada. Biba spoke about the lack of action and support for health issues that disproportionately impact Black communities, and sickle cell disease is one of them, and her need to not only advocate, but contend with resistance. As Black-identified people doing this kind of work, both within and outside of academia, that's not surprising in the least, right? Um, And it wouldn't be surprising to, I would say, everybody that we've spoken to so far in our project work. We see this day in and day out. We know that people the body language there there's a there's a discomfort you know and uh, sometimes apathy which often points to a, a long history of uh, of racism and um people are not prepared to create space for for issues that affect black communities in particular they're not prepared to they don't feel comfortable with it they find other language to guise their discomfort sometimes they're not even aware of where the source of that discomfort and I think the sickle cell example um, which has come through in some of our work as well is such a poignant example right because you see that it's not always about numbers right it's 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 got some there's something else there that's the common denominator in a few of our interviews there's been a lot of careful wording about how we talk about that common denominator which in many cases is code for racism I've noted this too, particularly as Canadians, which Rhonda referred to earlier, we're more comfortable talking about lack of services or lack of funding, lack of access, but we rarely get down to the race-related systemic causes. So here, I was curious to know how this careful language is addressed within Black communities. How is racism named and discussed when it's so rarely talked about out loud in mainstream engagement spaces? But to your point about sort of how Black communities are describing this, I, I would say that Black community leaders are very clear and articulate about these experiences and are, are very certainly within intra-community conversations, you know, very clear about naming the issues for what they are, racism, structural racism, whatever they, that might be. Sometimes there's a level of, um, there's a dance that you have to play when you're outside of the community 
and and advocating for and drawing attention to these issues. We we many of us have a long history of of trying to ring the alarm bells around these issues and very quickly being shut out, being labeled the angry black person, um, you know, being met with resistance and people who are not prepared to acknowledge issues for what they are, a lot of gaslighting. And so sometimes you have to couch it in other language to be able to just have a conversation about those barriers. I think we're at an interesting place, you know, as a society post George Floyd, where that space to have more explicit conversations about anti-Black racism is expanding. It's an interesting time to be asking these questions and thinking about these questions, because I think people are, for better or for worse, whether they want to or not, are a little bit more primed for these conversations. But I would certainly say from the perspective of Black communities, this is, this is you know, old news in, in, in a lot of respect. Alpha mentioned George Floyd. Actually, she said post-George Floyd, and she's referring to the past two years or so, where it seems that there's been more room to have explicit conversations about anti-Black racism. We just want to take a minute here to remind everyone who George Floyd is. George Floyd was a Black man and was murdered by a white police officer during an arrest in Minneapolis, Minnesota, about two years ago. The assault of Mr. Floyd and his death were recorded on video and posted online, and became a flashpoint for protest and outrage. It was one of several cases that got the public's attention to acknowledge what Black communities have been experiencing and reporting all along about anti-Black racism in policing. Right. Old news for Black communities, and a moment of reckoning for others. And even as there does seem to be some openings for more dialogue, Rhonda reminds us to look deeper, beyond symbolic gestures. In the North American context in particular, we're very obsessed with like symbols of progress, right? Or like symbolic anti-racism, like look at how great we are, we're talking to the black people, right? But we don't actually do anything substantive, measurable in order to facilitate change. And so I'm just thinking about how deeply entrenched that anti-blackness is, that it is normal to do that dance. It is normal to have to, align yourself and make those compromises? And are we thinking about or even questioning the psychological cost and the extra labor that goes into having to use these strategies just to be heard or to be counted or to be seen as equal to somebody else or equally deserving to just, you know, good care, good health care? Yeah. This makes me wonder if one of those symbols of progress is the heightened interest now in pushing for diversity in engagement practices. We've talked about this in other episodes, that focusing on diversity can be seen as sufficient and perhaps can be used as a way to excuse inaction. Now, Rhonda doesn't speculate about intentions, but certainly sees how things play out. And I mean, you can't necessarily judge people's intentions, right? But I do have some experience in the research realm of engaging in some of these partnerships. And often, again, if we don't deal with the root of the problem, which is anti-Blackness, then that also means that we're not dealing with the power dynamics that are present. And so what often happens is you get invited in for a partnership, but you don't really have any power. You don't really have any decision-making power. And so often you're brought in to tick a box to be like, see, we're not racist, we're nice, right? But you in that project don't actually have any room 
to do what you do or to share what you know or to ask different questions. Usually the research or the work is already set out for you and they just want you to fit into what is already being done. And so my experience has been that true co-design and true partnership and true power sharing does not actually happen. And so it becomes, again, another dance of like, how do I reduce harm to myself and the community I'm trying to serve rather than this could be a great opportunity to move things forward? In many ways, some of these partnerships, you know, they're doomed to fail from the beginning because from their inception, they're designed by people who don't have the lived experience and didn't consult those who do have it. We do often touch on this theme of how mainstream engagement activities aim for improved diversity, but there's a bit of an unresolved tension here. We say that more diversity means better representation, but at the same time, we insist people are only representing themselves and don't speak for others. It's hard to reconcile. Alpha points out that these tensions also show up differently, divided along racial lines. There are particular groups of people, primarily racialized groups, who are expected to, for better or worse, or who are seen as representatives of their community um, in ways that non-racialized people, right? If if you're a white person, you're a white person. You're not a representative of the white community, because what the heck does that even mean, right? Um, But if you are a Black person at the table, regardless of whether or not you're connected to a larger network, um, you are seen you are expected to be able to speak for and respond to wider community um, needs and interests. So I think at a high level, that's definitely something that resonates and and we hear about. Um, And then coming back to some of of, of Emily's points earlier about whether or not there is a level of, of harm that even with good intentions, you know, might be perpetuated. I think, you know, absolutely. Many Black people generally, but particularly Black advocates, leaders, um, you know, uh, community workers are extremely tired. They are doing critical work, filling the gaps of, of failed systems, often on shoestring or no budgets, dealing with also their own life challenges um, and living in Black bodies in a world that's not kind to, to Black people. And so when they are engaged uh, or tapped for these kind of engagement kind of processes, you know, many of the people that we spoke to talked about the fact that they looked upon these engagement processes with a lot of suspicion, which is informed by past experience. They find these spaces often to be quite draining and, and sometimes toxic, sometimes racist uh, spaces um, where they often don't have a lot of power and voice and influence. But many of them spoke to the fact that they felt that they still had to say yes. You know, we had one respondent who said, if not me, then who? Like someone's going to have to be there. For me, that's very harmful, right? That you're not only creating these systems that are not effective, but you're pulling people away from the work that is actually effective and the advocacy efforts that are actually moving the needle for them. This is an example of how mainstream engagement can actually cause harm. It can drain resources from communities when their attention is better served elsewhere. And harm is also caused in this whole deficit framing as well. For example, when we talk about people being hard to reach, we locate the blame or problem within the community. Alpha wants to change the narrative. On that point, I think something that I want to make sure comes comes out in, in our conversation um, is 
the whole framing of our project and the reason why for us it was important to start from looking at communities who are already on the ground working responding to these issues and engaging policymakers through various efforts is to really, really challenge this um, sort of deficit framing and model with which we often look at Black communities, right? And um, where we often see, I think we've come to a place in many of these conversations where we recognize that, hey, there's a gap here in representation. We need to be engaging Black communities more. Black representation is not um, there. We need to be doing that. But sometimes even in, in framing it as a gap, we sort of feed into this rhetoric and discourse that suggests that the community is actually, the, the problem is the community, right? That Black people are continue, you know, sort of embody this sort of social problem, which we see, you know, mirrored in so many different um, domains in, in society. This is the flipping the script that Alpha mentioned right off the top. Black communities are engaging, just not in the way mainstream culture has defined or made space for. For us, it was important to show that Black community leaders, many of them are, they're not sitting around waiting to be invited to a panel, right, on health issues. They are out there literally doing the work. And often what they're doing is they're they're doing the work, they are making their voices heard, they're finding ways to intervene in really, really impactful ways and, and shifting policies in impactful ways, and still attending these you know, formal processes because they are playing the long game, right? And understand that it's still important to be at those tables um, and hope that eventually things will get better and and are trying to sort of do it all. That's important, I think, to this conversation and and to our understanding of these issues to to really recognize that, that yes, there are these gaps and these challenges, um, but it's, it's not, you know, reflective of apathy at the community level and that these communities often have have a very acute understanding of how change happens and where change doesn't happen um, and are making calculations about where to participate uh, with a broader kind of agenda in mind. I suspect that part of the problem is that when we think about doing engagement, we're only looking in one direction, top down, or from the inside looking outward. Alpha has a challenge for people working in this space. I would really love to challenge um, the community of, of practitioners and, and scholars and thinkers on, you know, who are looking at patient and public engagement to look at their definitions of engagement more closely and to shift their gaze and, and, and look at what's happening in the, again, sort of activism advocacy space that might look like, you know, community level agitation, you know, just sort of, you know, protests, these things that um, we, we, we label in these ways and put them in the particular box and, and sometimes um, look down on, on those efforts um, or look at them with suspicion. And often, and m- most often don't afford them the sort of legitimacy that we would other formal processes of engagement, um, uh, nicer processes, you know, cleaner processes, more institutionalized processes. But when you actually look at the genealogy of social change, policy change in different domains, including the health policy domain, what particularly as it relates to marginalized, racialized and black communities in particular, the big needles when they've been moved have often been as a result of this sort of agitation, advocacy, activism, right, from the outside. And so for me, like we're missing the action to some to some extent, right? Like we need to understand that this is 
a form of engagement of community-led policy engagement. It's not always comfortable. It's often, you know, not on the agenda and and not um, convenient, but it's grounded. It's responsive to community needs and realities, and it's community, you know, it's community-led. And and so I, I think we need to to take that work seriously. The conversation, if if it's going to continue to circle around, how do we tweak? this existing model, I think we've missed the boat and we'll continue to miss the boat. And so I think a lot of it is thinking about and understand and creating space for the ways in which communities are already doing this work. And how do we listen when they do make their voices heard? Like we have, you know, some of the people that we were speaking to who said, you know, we because we ask in our in our interviews, we say, okay, we have these people who are interested from a technical perspective in refining these public, these formal processes of public engagement. What recommendations do you have? And a good number of them are would sort of respond to say, we don't really have many recommendations for you. Uh, um, our recommendations are that when we come, just listen. When we come to you, have a listening ear. And so don't call us, we'll call you is, is sort of a refrain that we heard from many of, of our um, respondents. And I think that speaks to the fact that they have found other ways to engage, but they're often, they have to do that with such resistance. And so I think starting to um, remove some of those barriers and, and that resistance would go a long way in, in shifting um, just these dynamics. We heard a lot of fatigue from people who were saying like, listen, at, at this point, especially sort of post George Floyd, like if we if you're bringing us to the table and we have to start with racism 101, we're not interested. We did an episode not long ago featuring Nav Prasad. He's the Canada Research Chair in Health Justice and a physician at St. Michael's Hospital in Toronto. He was strongly critiquing diversity as a tactic when it's used as some kind of equity intervention. And he was also critiquing engagement in general. And that also happened to be the episode where we were asked by our funder at the time to include a patient partner reflection. So we did. Yep. And as it turns out, the patient partner didn't agree with NAV at all. And as a non-white person herself, thought that diversity was something quite important. Well, it certainly made for an interesting episode. We asked if they had listened to it and what they thought. I actually liked that the way that that episode sort of played out because I think it highlights it's it highlights that tension right and it, and it shows the limits of representation and it shows that also that I you know that person or any person should not necessarily have the response like they don't have the responsibility to necessarily carry the they're not an elected official of racialized communities right like they have their own experience right uh, their own politics their own personal politic their own ideological kind of worldview and their own set of interests right and so to expect as an individual that they especially divorced of any other larger kind of network um, should necessarily align themselves with a broader agenda, I think is a lot to ask. And it shows the limits of these processes of, of engagement. So I think that's, it's, it's good that there was that tension um, that, that kind of came, came to the surface. And absolutely, it's something that surfa surfaced even, in, I mean, certainly I hear it across, it's a very much in a live conversation and surface even in the conversations that we've been having within this project. And we've had some really interesting conversations about what happens to people as they become, as you said, sort of socialized and institutionalized, also the self-selecting process, right? Like sort of who gets invited and, and re-invited, you know, to, to these tables because of, you know, how well they play the game, if you want to call it that, or how, how well they 
just fit into the institutional kind of agenda and, and change process. I, I think one of the more interesting conversations that we have we've been having within our project is sort of again going back to kind of the savvy of, of these communities, recognizing that we need all of these things, that we need people inside institutions who um, who understand those systems and are working within those systems and are sort of internal advocates and doing the, you know, and I think that that patient um, our representative was talking about the, the small incremental changes and the importance of those. And, and I think she's right, right? Like the, the, those changes are important, but we also need that people on the outside who are pushing the envelope, who are holding people accountable. Um, and that sometimes you definitely within communities, you those tensions arise, you have charges of, you know, being a sellout or, you know, just tensions around, um, around those, that agenda. So it does come up, but I think in really important moments and opportunities, you see people kind of aligning and kind of coming together for a, for a common cause, understanding that there, there are those sort of shared interests there. Alpha is highlighting the importance of having both insiders and outsiders working toward change in different ways. Rhonda had additional observations that patients can come into engagement spaces with potentially competing interests and identities. I've seen this in data sets before. Patients have competing interests. So while they may see that there are racial dynamics or racial power dynamics in their care or, or what is happening, they also are facing, you know, life and death situations. And so sometimes from what I've, you know, what I've seen in the research is they often have to choose. They have to choose to go along with whatever the narrative is because they're made to feel that this is the only way that they can live or get treatment. There's also the fear of upsetting or offending, you know, the clinicians and the, and the medical team that is working with you. It's like, if I say what I really think about how this is going, is that going to affect my care? And so when we're thinking about uh, patient engagement, a patient may not understand the research process. They may not feel that it's as confidential as they're saying it is. And so in many ways, I'm not saying that they're not telling the truth. I'm just saying there are competing interests there and there are fears there that may alter or, or shape how much they say about the racial dynamics that are present in their care. Hey, Emily. Hey, Jen. Well, we covered a lot of ground with Alpha and Rhonda and have decided to pause here, but we'll carry on in the next episode. Yep, great. How about we go over some of what we just heard before wrapping up? Yeah, okay, good idea. So I'll start. So, irrefutably, there are significant health and healthcare gaps for Black communities. And mainstream healthcare kind of knows this, and its main response is to, I guess on occasion, talk about diversity and inclusion, maybe even reach out to Black communities and ask members or leaders to participate in, I don't know, discussions, roundtables, whatever's going on at the moment. Alpha called them formalized processes. Awareness of those gaps, the health and healthcare gaps, they're higher now, as is scrutiny and visibility of how mainstream healthcare responds to that awareness. I imagine that invitations to Black community leaders to participate in certain conversations, well, they've increased as a result. Right. 
And in the meantime, black communities have been fighting their own fires. Based on a very long history of broken commitments and neglect, they're rightfully leery of formalized processes, but feel that they can't say no to participation. So they're exhausted, doing the work to patch up the broken system while also performing the role that mainstream healthcare has assigned to them. Dancing the dance, as Alpha mentioned. So at the heart of all of this is racism, systemic and individual, both overt and hidden just below the surface, couched in Canadian politeness and liberalism. Both Alpha and Rhonda talked about the limits of our usual engagement processes. People who are individually recruited may, in fact, not be connected with a larger network that speaks for wider community needs and interests. Now, this is certainly the baseline assumption that the engagement enterprise strives for, but it's actually not an assumption always afforded to people from racialized communities. Especially in a health or healthcare context, individuals may feel that they have to pick which of their many lived experiences to foreground. Is it their experiences as a patient? In this case, as a member of a Black community? As someone with a particular language or cultural background? It's not only about thinking, what am I actually here for? But also recognizing that there are potential risks and serious repercussions when foregrounding one identity over another. We see a lot of well-intentioned efforts in mainstream spaces to contend with or respond to all of the things we just discussed. And there's actually a rather simple answer, which is not doing more engagement. As Alpha and Rhonda's research has illustrated, Black community leaders know what needs to be done, what data needs to be collected, where efforts should be directed. What they need is funding and resources, not yet more dialogue and studies they didn't ask for. Okay, so that's a good place to pause. We'll pick up this conversation again in the next episode, where we carry on with Alpha and Rhonda about Black communities' response to COVID and why they think it's valuable for Black researchers to be doing this kind of work. Here's Rhonda with some final thoughts. Black communities want to be and should be defining their own issues and their own needs. It shouldn't be other people coming in and telling them what they should need or how they should do things. Everybody has a finite amount of time and resources, and we cannot put so much energy into just being whole people but also having to educate and teach and find money for this and work on this off the side of my desk and do this and do that. We need to grapple with our inability to legitimize the knowledge and the skills and the, the values that Black communities are bringing to the table. Big thanks to Alpha Bubba and Rhonda C. George of the Public Engagement in Health Policy Project for participating in this episode. Matters of Engagement is written and produced by Jennifer Johannesson and Emily Nicholas Engel. If you have feedback, ideas, or just want to say hello, please get in touch through our website at mattersofengagement.com. This series is supported by the Public Engagement in Health Policy Project, which promotes research, critical reflection, and dialogue about engagement issues that have a health and health policy focus. Learn more about this Future of Canada project 
at engagementinhealthpolicy.ca.